just had a slightly awkward moment there where I was trying to sing that song, but I realized I wasn't here last week whenever you all learned it. So you all sang it wonderfully, and I felt like a total outsider. Um, Teach me to take a week off. Folks, have open before you Exodus 17. Today we're coming to the penultimate part of this particular uh, series of studies. We'll wrap things up next week. Exodus 17. If you're using the Bibles that are there, it's on page 75. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's the bread of life. It's what we need to live on. And Lord, we thank you for this particular part of your word that we've been enjoying these last months, this incredible salvation story. Lord, there's not a person here this morning, not one among us, who doesn't need to be saved. There's not one among us here who doesn't need a a fuller understanding of all the ways in which you save us and give us new life. So Lord, come and, and show more of yourself to us this morning. Teach us who you are. Teach us who we are. And help us to live wonderful lives before you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You'd think when God had brought his people out of slavery in Egypt that that would be the the hard part done, that it would be plain sailing from here on in. Uh, Wrong. It's, Eugene Peterson puts it like this, he says, getting saved is easy, becoming a community is difficult, damnably difficult. Nothing could have been easier, actually, when you think back uh, of what we've been learning these last few weeks, nothing could have been easier for Israel than to be saved. What did they do? Let's try and remember. God told them, uh, eat a meal, some roast lamb. Then he said to them, walk out of Egypt. Then he said to them, watch while I defeat Pharaoh and the army of Egypt. So it's eat, walk, and watch. Oh yeah, and by the way, sing and dance at the end of it when I've saved you. So it's eat, walk, watch, sing, and dance. It's pretty easy. So it's not a hard thing in one sense to be people who are saved. It gets much harder, though, we discover for Israel once they are saved. Just three days after they had, they had danced the salvation shuffle on the shores of the Red Sea, they're starting to, to complain. They're starting to feel the, the pressure, the water that tasted bad. A month and a half later, they're complaining again because this time they didn't like their food. You looked at these incidents last week uh, with David, and now in the first half of our passage this morning, we find that this grumbling is still ongoing. Again, there's a problem with the water. The people take it out on Moses. To the extent we read in the passage, they were about to stone him. So this is a a serious uh, disagreement. People are, are very animated and very upset. So these people have been saved, but now they're struggling to live together. 
They're struggling to live with each other, with their leadership, and they, they're struggling to relate well to God. In chapters 15 to 17, we get a, a massive sense of how much these folks are struggling to live together. There are 14 references to them fighting. Nine times we're told that they're complaining, three times they're quarreling, and twice they simply disobey God. So these guys are in a mess. They're saved, but they don't know the first thing about living together now as a community of saved people. You know, whenever I read passages like this in the Bible, I I love it. Uh, It probably says more about who I am than, than anything else, but I love the I love the realism of God's word. It's so refreshingly honest about human nature. You'd think if you're recording this story, if you're writing it up from a historical point of view, you're you're showing how great God is, you tell this great salvation story, and then you talk about how wonderful the people were in the light of it, how great God's people are. But instead here we get a, a massively honest picture. This is no photoshopped, no airbrushed shot of the people of God. It's, it's just totally honest. People who quarrel with each other, who grumble against their leaders and who disobey God. And they do all that weeks after God has saved them. Can I let you into a secret? It's still going on today. People whom God has saved every bit as much and even more than the Israelites are grumbling today. People whom God has brought, bought with the, the precious blood of his own dear son are quarreling and they're fighting in their churches. I've seen it. You've seen it. And I'm going to stick my neck out and say that most of us at some point have played our part in it. We're like Israel. We've discovered that the easy part is the first part, the being saved. We've discovered that living this saved life in the salvation family proves to be pretty difficult. So all of this raises... I think a very important and maybe even a timely question for us at Kirkpatrick Memorial. How do we avoid becoming a grumbling church? I would have thought that's a good thing for us to to think about for a moment this morning. I think in some ways, members of Kirkpatrick Memorial these days, we have a double sense of identification with the Salvation Family of the Exodus. In one sense, we identify with them in the way that all people, all those who call themselves Christians, all those who have been saved by Jesus Christ, we we identify there with, with knowing God's salvation. So if you're in Christ here this morning, we, we share much in common with Israel. But I want to suggest that we in this place, this gathered in this building this morning, recent members of Kirkpatrick Memorial, we, we have a very local sense of God having acted dramatically to save this community. 
Some of you have only arrived with us quite recently and don't know the, the recent history of this congregation. Around about seven years ago, this place was going to be closed. The lights were to be switched off. The padlocks on the gates closed one last time and the keys thrown away or handed over to someone else. Kirkpatrick Memorial was finished. But then God acted. God moved to answer prayers of people who'd been praying here for a long, long time. And he breathed new life into the the body here. And he restored this community. And he saved this place. This gathering here this morning, make no mistake about it, is only by the grace of God. It's because God chose to save this little community. It's sobering when we remember that other communities did not experience that same new life. So folks, I ask you this morning, when we have seen God's salvation personally, and when we have seen it in a corporate way, how do we ensure that we don't take all this for granted? How do we avoid becoming a grumbling people? I want to suggest two answers to to this critical question. First of all, something that we mustn't do. We mustn't try to build community on a naive denial of the struggles and the problems that are really here. If there's going to be real community here, it will only be as real people are honest about real issues. There's no other way. I want you to think for a moment about the issues that confronted the the people of God in the Exodus, the things that they were grumbling about, just before we're too hard on them. Pharaoh's coming after you with his army. Do you want to be slaughtered with your family and your friends? That's a real issue. You're in the desert and there's no drinking water. That seems to me to be a real issue too. No food. Do you want to watch your family starve around you? So the children of Israel are not wrong to be troubled by the situations that are confronting them. These aren't trivial little things. These are, these are big issues and real issues that they're being asked to deal with. But where they are wrong is to complain against Moses, whom God has given them as their leader, and, and to put God to the test. Look at verse 7 of chapter 17. We're told that Moses named the place Meribah because the people tested the Lord saying, is the Lord with us or not? The biblical writer lets us know what the the problem is here. It's this sense that the people are questioning God, God who only six weeks ago had dramatically shown his power, his provision as he rescued them out of Egypt. So, folks, as your pastor in this place, I want to go on record here saying that I want you to be real about your church life. Okay? When we're trying to work out how to not be a grumbling church, 
This is not the route to go down. The route of denial, where we say, oh, ours is a lovely wee church. We all like each other. We all get on well. The the minister and the leaders, they're all great. Folks, that will get us nowhere in a real world where we live before the real God. It seems to me that there are real issues in this church today, issues that are stretching us. And as we go into the future, there will be more and maybe even larger issues that that will stretch us and and cause us to struggle. There will be questions about how to reach out to our neighborhood, about what we should do with our buildings, about what form our worship services should take. And there will be other questions too. And I want to say to you this morning that it's not wrong to ask those questions. It's very healthy, I think, to recognize that there are different perspectives uh, on some of these things, that we won't agree with everyone all the time about all these matters. None of that will be wrong. But what will be wrong will be to quarrel with one another, to complain against the leadership in this place, and to question God, his presence, and his willingness to be among us if only we let him. So that's the first thing we say in answer to our question. How do we go about not becoming a grumbling church? We don't deny our struggles and our challenges. But there's a second positive thing that we must do. We must cultivate a radical dependence on God. Think back for a second to that first incident in chapter 17, that that moment when there's no water. I wonder how God would have provided for the people if they hadn't complained. Do you think they would have starved, or sorry, died of thirst in the desert? Of course not. Of course not. God would have provided wonderfully for them. By, by complaining and grumbling, these, these guys missed out on the chance to see God's natural intervention, his, his mercy and his love for them expressed. Folks, I sometimes wonder how much I miss out on God's spontaneous blessing because I'm too busy whinging or giving off or grumbling. Or, you know, God, God's always ready. Always ready to, to respond and to do and to give. And I wonder how much of it all I miss. In Psalm 95, the psalmist encourages God's people not to repeat the mistakes of Exodus 17. He says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where our fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. We miss a lot when we're focused only on whinging and complaining. Folks, we see the Israel in the latter part of the chapter demonstrate the kind of a radical dependence that I'm thinking of here this morning. They're attacked by a Bedouin tribe called the Amalekite. And it's, it's interesting because in the crisis of the moment, they don't do what they've been doing 
every time for the last few months. They don't complain. I don't know if you noticed that in that story. There's no complaint. It seems like the moment of crisis focuses their attention. And instead of complaining against Moses and doubting God, they, they choose to do two things. To work and to pray. Joshua, with whatever kind of an army he can get together out of this bunch of, of escaped slaves, he goes into the valley and he does the work of fighting the Amalekites. Moses, with Aaron and Hur, goes up onto the hilltop to pray. Work and prayer. It's hard to know exactly what's going on with Moses and his hands in the air. I remember as a child reading this story and thinking it was quite weird. Didn't really know what was going on. And if you read verse 11 alone, it might look a bit like magic. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. I think the scenario becomes a wee bit clearer when Moses reflects on it in verses 15 to 16. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner, for hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. Moses talks about God as his banner. It's a, it's a military metaphor. God is the banner around whom Israel, the armies of Israel, rallied that day in the field of battle. He had his hands raised to the throne of God to demonstrate a radical dependence on God. This time the people hadn't grumbled. They depended on God. I want to spend the last few moments of our time together this morning thinking with you about the shape of Israel's radical dependence, this work and this prayer. Because it seems to me that to be faithful to God today, we'll want to do both of these things. And we'll want to do them in a balanced way. If you're around any church I would guess for any length of time, you'll discover that, that there are those people who, who either say explicitly, but more likely just demonstrate in their living that prayer is not that important. There's work to be done, and we just need to get on with it. Now, there are lots of passages in God's Word that, that warn us against this way of living. In Psalm 20, the, the psalmist has God's people saying, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. The get, up with, the get on with it kind of person sometimes is prone to trust only in themselves, their abilities, and their resources. Let's just get on with it. Prayer is a luxury. Think again of Jesus. I think Jesus was a, a get on with it sort of person. He worked hard. We get that insight a number of times in the Gospels. You find Jesus has worked to the extent that he's tired and he needs to rest. He needs to get away from this, this demanding work that he's been involved in, this, this preaching the good news, this, this healing of people. 
But make no about it. While Jesus worked, he prayed. He prayed quite a lot as he just went about his ordinary business. So if he has a crowd in front of him and he, he wants to feed them, he, he prays to his father that, that that might be possible. He prays as well in solitude and silence. We're told a number of times of when Jesus just retreats, even from his 12 uh, disciples, and goes and prays with his father. So Jesus cultivates this, this life of prayer with God. Folks, if we are to be radically dependent on God, then, then we must pray. We must restore the centrality of prayer in our church life. And I want to say something more than that. I want to say that we need to discover how our generation is going to do that. I suspect that some of the reasons that we struggle with prayer in church life these days is that we're trying to use models of corporate prayer that don't quite sit right with who we are today. I have a sense that, that we do, although we struggle with prayer, there's, there's praying that we want to do, but we want to find the right way to do it. So let's, let's recommit ourselves to praying that God would work through us. If there are some people in the church who say you shouldn't waste your time on prayer, then there are others who say that prayer is the only thing you need to do. If we're faithful in prayer, then God will bless us. It's not important that we go out with the good news. It's not important that we go out to bring healing to the world in Jesus' name. God will raise other people up to do that. We only need to pray. Folks, I'm increasingly less convinced by that position also. Jesus didn't call disciples to start prayer meetings. He trained them to take his word and his deeds to the community around them. The Puritan bishop Joseph Hall comments on our passage this morning and he says, In vain shall Moses be up on the hill if Joshua be not in the valley. Prayer without means is a mockery of God. Folks, it's not honoring to God to sit in our church buildings praying that people will come to faith in Jesus Christ if we will not do what we can to go out and meet them with the good news and deeds in Jesus' name. Work and pray. Pray and work. This is the Jesus way. Do them both together. I want to close by coming back to our question. How can we ensure that Kirkpatrick Memorial doesn't become a grumbling kind of church? We've said that it would be by cultivating a radical dependence on God. Folks, it, it struck me as I thought about this at home that if we really do this, then grumbling will not be a problem in our church life. I think I can promise that. 
That might seem strange to you to stand at the front and say, I'm confident that we can be a church where grumbling isn't an issue. Let me tell you why I think I can say that. In my experience, people who are, who are committed to relying on God in prayer don't grumble about what's going on in their church life. Because they've learned to trust Him with what's going on, even if it's not quite their cup of tea. They've learned patience to, to bring their concerns and their, their, their troubles before Him and say, Lord, there it is. I don't like it. But you can do something with it. They've learned to wait patiently for God to transform that situation and those people and for God to be on the throne and in the center. In my experience, those who are truly committed to working in the church don't grumble either. Because they're working themselves, you see, they they know the struggles of others in the place who are trying to do work too. They understand what it is to make a mistake now and then. They know what it is to feel tired and feel that we maybe can't go on just now. Whenever things aren't quite as, as they want them to be, these folks have no inclination to grumble, just a desire to see things made right. Brothers and sisters in Christ, can I invite you today to join me in praying for the life of this congregation? Pray for the leadership here. Pray that they'll be wise and and full of, of God's grace and truth. Can I invite you too to join me in doing our share of the work in this place? To know that each one of us carries our share of the load. That none's a spectator and a consumer analyzing what others do for us, checking whether it meets the mark. Let's carry the load together. Let's pray and let's work. Let's work and let's pray. I think if we do that, we can close the door on grumbling and know that it will have no foothold in this place. Let us pray.